Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it, and I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity, and a mindset shift from I have to to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to, away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. So welcome to this week's episode of the Freedom Fridays podcast, where I look at things in a slightly different way and I ask questions of people who've moved from I have to to I choose to. Uh, this week's guest is uh, a relatively new colleague and I'd say friend. We connected quite by chance in some ways, but have found lots and lots of similarities. So welcome to this conversation, Howard. Thanks, Pete. Glad to be here. How are you this morning? I'm very good, thank you. Sun shining on me, which is always a good thing for a Yorkshireman, as you know, where I grew up, the sun didn't shine very often. <laughs> so yes, 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 me too, sir. And so that's one of the ways in which we connected. We realised we'd both spent time in Leeds in England for a while. And so, Howard, I start these uh, very broadly uh, asking, you know, people that you and I know, you know, relatively ordinary people who are doing or have done extraordinary things. What's the big change that they have made or executed how have they gone from i have to to i choose to and can you share with us what the big change is that you've gone through yeah um there's a couple of things one is that i grew up really in poverty um so there were days when i know um my mum struggled to feed me and um I quite literally up, yeah mm. yeah we grew up I grew up in the back streets of, of Leeds in a very working class area. We didn't have hot running water. We didn't have a toilet inside. We had to walk down the street to a shared toilet. So I've gone from that to living here and I'm living beyond my dreams, way beyond what I ever dreamed possible for me. So that's, that's one massive change. And the other is that I am also dyslexic. And so okay. for me, at school and for for the early part of my life the first 20 odd years of my life I actually believed I was stupid and that I didn't have any opportunity to do anything academically or um, in any way to do with being bright or clever or creative or anything like that and now I run a, a very successful marketing company a coaching company so there are two massive changes that have happened. Wow. Um, can I pick up on the poverty thing first? What decade was that? <laughs> decade? Being kind. <laughs> I was born in 1962. Right. So that would be the 60s and the 70s? Yeah. Yeah. It, Particularly it, the 60s, though. We, we moved from that house when I was four. <clears throat> right. And look, look, I was born in the 60s as well, 
and I have no recollection of housing that didn't have inside toilets and didn't have hot running water. I, I didn't even know those existed. Luxury. <laughs> yeah, luxury, yeah. We were in the council houses just up the road. Um, at what point did you realise, or do you have any recollection of, at what point you realised that wasn't the norm? I don't think I did realise. It was only when we moved to a new house and it had um, hot running water and um, and indoor plumbing, if you like, <laughs> that, you know, we were in this luxurious place. Um, and there's a, there's a story about how we got there, uh, something that happened to my dad and, and he came in with a little bit of money and, and my mum forced him to spend the money on the house because my dad was a gambler and if she'd not really pushed him to do that, the money would have been gone. So right. for yeah. that point in his time, he overcome an addiction in order to do the right thing. And, and we went from um, extreme poverty uh, to what seemed at the time luxury. I mean, when I go back to that house now, and I've not been there for probably a, a decade, but it's this tiny little place. But for us, it seemed like, you know, we'd moved into the Hilton Hotel. Yeah. It, it, it is a tiny little house. I could fit it inside my lounge room probably. But uh, at the time, yeah, we'd gone from um, one room downstairs and I believe two rooms upstairs. It was a back-to-back -back house, so there was no back door. It was a wall, and the, the neighbours behind us, their back wall was our back wall, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, yeah, they were, they, you know, it was, it was tough times. It was tough yeah. times. Um, they were, there wasn't a bath indoors. They used to bring a, a, a bath that was stored in the cellar into the living room. They'd stoke up the coal fire and they'd heat water, which was put in there. And um, yeah, and that's how we, we had a bath once a week. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, my, my, my story isn't quite as dramatic as that, but I do remember quite vividly getting a bath in the dishes water. Yeah. So uh, like many of us who grew up then, the family would do the dishes. There was no dishwashers. No. And then my mum would plunk me in the dirt <laughs> and clean me. Like, you know, I didn't know any different. And, and so I do want to pick up on the dyslexia thing. I think that's the conversation I'd like to have with you. But can I just, another question about the poverty aspect, given, you know, both of us live in Australia and it's a very, um, a relatively, you know, it's called the lucky country. And we both live, you know, out of our dreams, lives, with what we do, where we live, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to what extent are you aware of how the, your poverty upbringing has shaped your perspective? Um, yeah, I am aware. And there's a couple of things as well. And we might touch on, on Margaret Thatcher at some point in this conversation <laughs> because she, she was a pivotal person in my life, not necessarily for a good reason, but... Um, yeah, uh, the, the, the poverty thing, I am a very grateful person. So okay. I, I do obviously take things for granted because familiarity breeds contempt for everybody. However, I do, I do recognise the wealth that I have in living in a nice place and being able to walk to the beach. And that to me is wealth. Um, yeah. But the other thing is that we were told, you know, right from probably being 
15 years old through to 25 years old, that if you didn't work and work really, really hard, your job was on the line. I remember Norman Tebbett, who probably means nothing to anyone listening to this, but he was yeah. Margaret Thatcher's right-hand man. I remember him saying, if you don't work hard, there's 6 million people that want your job. Mm, I remember and that, that was 10% of the population of Britain at the time. And so we had a, an unemployment number of 10%. I mean, yeah. in Australia right now, it's 5%. And people are saying, oh, that's getting a bit up yeah, there. Well, we had 10%. And yeah. we were told, you know, if you don't work your ass off, you're out. And there's 6 million people queuing for your job. So we yeah. just worked and worked and worked. So when I got to this country that's more laid back and, and um, really indulges in, in what we can do as a family and barbecues and beaches and things like yeah. that, and work is almost secondary, almost, um, that I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. You know, I just, <laughs> it was like, yeah. wow, I've come from this place where I'm whipped to work to yeah. a place where people go, yeah, work's important because it provides money so that we can go out at the weekend and we can do what we want to do. It, yeah, so I, yeah. I'm very conscious and grateful for that. And even though, you know, in comparison, I live in the life of luxury, I brought my daughter up to, even though she's always lived in this life of luxury, I've always brought her up to realise, you know, that that not everybody has this um, yeah. Yeah, I'm going off at a tangent here, but we but took no, because a- I've I've got a couple of other questions. I want to keep on this, if that's okay. Um, I've, I've I know a little bit. I've read a little bit about kind of intergenerational beliefs, and okay. exactly as you said, certainly if you're an, a, a Brit, I'm guessing it's maybe a a global thing, but I don't know. But certainly as a Brit, if you grew up in the '60s and the '70s, that was the belief you had to work hard. And I feel myself, and I know. I still have a lot of that running through me, that my success is driven by the harder I work, the more successful I become. And, and part of me likes that, and that's partly what's driven my you know, subjective success. But I recognize there's a threshold that I would often cross, and it's not, not good. D- do you feel that? And if so, have you managed that? Have you been able to shape that in a more balanced way? Yeah, so there's there's a belief that I was told, and it was drummed into me by my father, which was um, a fair day's pay for a hard day's work. And so the the other side of that same coin is you don't deserve pain if you don't work hard. And so it's a belief that I I have wrestled with over the years. Um, Where I am now in my career, um, it doesn't drive me that much. I've got to a stage where most of my survival needs are, are handled, and now I work for money that provides extras, if you like. So, um, so I don't have to be so driven by that. And I now get to choose who I work with and how I work and so on. But for a long, 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 long time, um, I would turn up for work when there was no work to be done. And I would sit in front of my computer at nine o'clock because that's what you did. Yeah. Whether or not I had anything to do, I'd sit there, I'd make work in order to fulfill that belief that was running beneath the surface, like a little Mm -hmm. computer program. Yeah. And what I see now, because I do a lot of coaching, is that a lot of people struggle with that one. And they don't, even though it's running them, 
yeah. they're, they're not having the belief the belief is having them it's mm. running them and i see that often much of my work is to illuminate these beliefs that are not actually doing good service for the person so yes. i do know about that one and um yeah it's something that i've i've worked on over the years and and given your i guess shaping and upbringing in this world of poverty that you were exposed to in Leeds have you gone through any exercises where you've worked out how much is enough and I don't just necessarily mean financially obviously that'll be a big one but have you worked out how much is enough in terms of freedom happiness depth of relationship have you gone through any of that given your perspective on you know here's where I was and you know look where I am now there is a tendency to continue growing and evolving and not necessarily chasing, but I'm wondering if you've, you've worked on that. In, in a kind of, so to, if I said yes, I would be lying. I have never sat down with an exercise to work out what's, right. what's enough. But however, I've gone through exercises and processes within some training that I did that, really fractured my paradigm so my if my paradigm was i had to work hard to be good and good yep. enough and to be worthy of payment yep. those beliefs were were shattered by me going through some exercises that i can talk about as, as we move along um but it wasn't necessarily focused on on those kind of beliefs but i think the other thing that that broke those paradigms was losing my parents individually, my dad first, then my mum, right. and realizing that what I was working towards, you know, a pile of money or whatever it was, actually didn't matter at all. Once I lost the love of someone that I, yeah. I kind of took for granted. Um, and yeah. I got to see that connection with, with people that you love and care for. Um, is much more valuable than a pile of money. So yeah. I think, yes, I went through some exercises, but I also experienced loss that woke me up. Okay. Uh, do you, have you got siblings? No. <laughs> so there's another connection. Okay. I didn't realize we were both only children. Yeah. And I lost my dad when I was 10. Right. And so we've had a very similar you know, shaping experience um, that still, you know, drives me today. It's the, I've called it the, the worst and the best day of my life. Mm -hmm. I wish I could bring it all back. I'd give all of this up for that. And yet, because that happened, it's shaped who I've become, what I've done, where I am, et cetera, et cetera. Have you reflected on the loss of your parents as something that's shaped you in a good way or a not so good way? Um, yeah, I, I think my relationships with my parents shaped me anyway. And, and a lot of what I do and what I believe and how I behave, good and bad, um, comes from them. Um, but the loss of them was a catalyst for me to change as a person without reflection. So when I was growing up, I had no idea that I was doing the vast majority of things that I was doing to prove to my dad I was worthy and to hear him say, I love you. 
and and it and I even even though I'm dyslexic, I got myself a master's degree in education, and that wow. and the driving force behind it was to finally hear him say he was proud of me and he loved me, and <laughs> he never did. <laughs> the bugger died without saying it. So I had, to, right? I had to resolve that after his death, actually, that I am a good person and I am good yeah, enough right. and I'm worthy of love, even if he wasn't capable of saying it. And um, and it wasn't about me being bad and it wasn't about him being bad. It was just the way that he was put together as a, a man, as a person that wasn't him. He was capable of displaying love in lots of ways, mm. but it, for him to say it wasn't his way of being as a person. Um, so that was, you know, that death my, my father passing away was um, a catalyst for me to then have to look at well if I'm not doing my life for his approval because he can't prove anymore why the hell am I alive why am I doing this and without going to suicide because it never got that dark but it, it, I went through a few days of being bereft of meaning not just bereft of my father but what's the point and literally what is the point yeah um, and I don't mean that in a suicidal way. I mean, I was just lost. I was like this rudderless boat out on the ocean, not knowing why I should do anything. Mm. So, so that, again, without reflection, that happened inside my body and my feelings and my um, psychology within moments of him dying. It lasted a few days. And then when my mum passed away many years later, um, I got the insight that life's short, you know, and um, and I want to be doing what I want to be doing. I don't want to be doing what I feel I need to do. So, you know, mm. moving from have to, to choose to. Yeah. So if, if I'm going to die in the next anything from moment to 20 years, how do I want to spend that time? Because we don't know how long it's going to last. And so I literally thought about who do I want to be around and who do I not want around me? And that mm. included clients. That meant saying goodbye yeah. to people that were putting money in my pocket. Also, what kind of people do I want to attract into my life, personally mm. and professionally? Mm. And also, what do I want to give? What do I want to be? Not known for like in the newspapers, but if somebody said, what did you think of that Howard Tinker guy? They would say he was a really good guy because he did this and he did that and, and yep. he helped me with this and he listened when I when I needed to speak and if I ever was in trouble I knew that that was the guy I could ring and he, he mm. wouldn't judge me um, that kind of thing so what did I want to give what service could I give to other people um, yeah. so my mum's passing made me reflect on that and I actually went through a year where I focused on what is meaningful to me so what really matters and it mm. and I came up with <laughs> healthy wealthy wise you remember that old uh like rhyme when we were kids and um and happy healthy wealthy wise and happy and I thought <laughs> typically me ex-engineer I'll break the year down into four three months and I'll focus yeah. on each one and I had this kind of inkling I might write a book about it um, I never did. Um, so I looked at, you know, where am I with my health? So I did intermittent fasting. I went to the gym, which I, 
I don't like exercise, but I pushed myself to go through the gym. I did uh, a paleo diet. Um, I gave up alcohol. Um, wealthy, I looked at, you know, what are we doing with our money, investments, um, shares, that kind of thing. Wise, I actually uh, looked at, can I, can I experience wisdom beyond what I can get intellectually? So um, I booked myself on an ayahuasca retreat, so right. jungle medicine. Um, and we can talk about that either, you know, in this call for like five minutes, or we can yeah. talk about it for an hour or two at another time. But basically it gave me the opportunity to get beyond the threshold of my conscious mind. So I, I had like experiences that I couldn't, literally think through they came yeah. to me because i was in an altered state um so i went and did that i went to india spent time in india um and then happiness was again about you know who and what makes me happy so i spent a whole year after my mum passed away doing that and i walked away from my business i just let it run and i thought if i come back and it's gone it's gone and if i come back and it's still working great and um and we have systems and people in place yeah. but when i came back it was it was pretty much doing what it did we'd lost a few clients and we hadn't replaced them because i had no sales process in place without me there so yeah. but i wasn't bothered you know i came back a different when i say came back i didn't go anywhere yeah. much i mean i i i went off for weeks or whatever and came back to my house but i wasn't focused in the business and I think since then, that was the beginning of it, but we've had COVID and again, that got me to reflect on why I'm here, what do I want to do, what do I want to yeah. do. So I think I'm a, a very different person, but not through exercises, it's more through, you know, things that were catalysts for me to change. Well, they've been the catalysts, I think, and you've, you've taken the space and time to reflect. Um, I'm going to, I will get to the dyslexia thing because I don't really want to talk about that, but there's a couple of strands I want to try and pull together there. Um, prior to us recording this, Howard, you, you said that you had done a lot of work on yourself and I was reflecting that when I work with leaders and teams today, they use this kind of I'm time poor when really it's a space poor thing. They don't give themselves enough space to work on themselves for whatever reason, I don't know how to, I don't know, I don't want to, but you've described many examples of what you've done to work on yourself. The, the second strand is I read years ago that there's a really high, you know, 70, 80% of entrepreneurs who've had some childhood trauma. They've lost a parent, they've lost a, a sibling, uh, they've been in an accident, and that's been a partly a catalyst to drive them forward. And so I'm wondering if you've got a view, do you need to lose a parent to work on yourself? Do you no. need to have trauma to work on yourself? Are there examples of people that have had no trauma and are able to work on themselves? Yeah, no, I don't believe you, you have to lose a parent. I mean, I didn't lose my dad until I was older. It wasn't in my childhood that I lost him. It was when mm. I was older, but he was still a primary figure in my life. Mm. Um, unbeknownst to me I didn't think so you know I was a grown man um, right. but funnily enough when I reflect back I'd mm. gone into business but didn't tell him and I was a grown man 
because I didn't want his negative, uh, pessimistic, critical view of what I was doing because I knew I was very vulnerable in going into business because I still believed I was stupid, remember? Yeah. So because of the dyslexia thing and every time I tried to do something, um, I, he was critical and and, and and in the moment it was awful and those years of that were awful but in retrospect when I when I had lost him and I look back on it I can see lots of positives about why he was critical he, he just had you know three tools in his tool bag and that's all he had and he used them from a point of view that he didn't want me to be hurt in life but all he had was a hammer and a chisel and a big wrench you yeah. know, whereas we might have, you know, really delicate, fine tools that we use. Yeah. He wasn't equipped with that. He came from, ab- he came from abject poverty. You know, it makes my poverty look like riches. I mean, his wow. father was a dock, dock worker in Hull who literally had to queue up at the dock gates and physically fight, like physically fight to get a job for the day. My granddad wow. had half his ear bitten off in one of those fights. So wow. that... And then my granddad was had an alcohol problem. So he'd work for a day, go to the pub, come home drunk and beat my grandma up. Yeah. And my dad at 14 jumped in and fought with his dad and all of that. So he had the horrendous life. And then, you know, that's his model for fathering. And then yeah. I come into the world. And, and so, and he never yeah. physically abused me. Right. It scared the shit. <laughs> it scared the, um, the Jesus out of me a lot. Um, through his criticism and his anger, but he never he never did to me what his father did to him. So we're making progress. Yeah. But, you know, um, as I say, he, he had a massive influence on me, not necessarily in the most positive way, because I was, you know, I was affected by his criticism right through to into my 20s and 30s. Um, that that changed, but later, but um, yeah, it, I don't think you have to lose someone. Um, and I, and we could look at that now and say, well, that must have been a traumatic time in your childhood. There's your trauma. This is what you acted against. But I didn't yeah. even know that that was traumatic, Pete. At the time, I yeah. thought that was normal. Yeah. You know, I, it's like fishing water. I, 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 yeah, I didn't know see. anybody else was having a different experience. Yeah. Same with, with dyslexia. I didn't know that other kids couldn't read and put words together or remember the shape of words. I, I thought everybody was like that. I thought I was like that. I thought you were like that. When we sat together in class, if we'd have known each other, then I'd have had my Janet and John book and you'd have had John and I'd be looking yeah. at the page and not making any sense of it. And I would think that you were. It wasn't until I got labeled a problem child that I knew that that. I was a problem. But coming back to the trauma and working on yourself. No, I think you can can work on yourself no matter what your background. The way that I stumbled across it, I was um, I I'd worked in social work and therapy for about eight years, and I'd been at the very high end, the pointy end of it with juvenile offenders. So I worked with kids in in danger of going into custody. They'd had all the chances, they'd blown everything, and they'd committed horrendous crimes. So I worked with kids that had killed other people and 
you know, all that stuff. And I'd worked there for four years, um, not particularly wanting to go into this, but I also worked with uh, juvenile sex offenders as well. So I was right yeah. at the pointy end, and I did that for four years, and I'm just about burnt out, just yeah. about on my last legs, and I got an opportunity to move to a mental health team in another town, and work in child and, and family mental health and become a family therapist. So I went there and we we went to this, um, I went to this interview and I met this other candidate there and they chose both of us. So we were both working in this team and I was telling her a bit about my background and she said, oh, there's this course you should go on. I think you'd love it. And I'd just done my master's degree. It cost me about 2000 pounds back in those days. And I said, well, how much is that? And she said, oh, it's 200 pounds. So a tenth of what I paid. And she thought this course was gonna be fantastic for me. And I had no idea of seminars or workshops. I'd never come across it. I didn't know what personal development was. So I thought it would be like school or university. So I said, where, where is it? Where do they hold it? And she said, oh, it's in a hotel ballroom kind of thing. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was really confused, but I trusted this woman. So I went along, paid my money. I went along. I turned up with an exercise book and a pencil and, you know, all that sort of thing. And they immediately say, there's nothing here to write. Put it all away. This is experiential. And I'm like, I'm never going to remember this. <laughs> Still dyslexic, remember. I'm never going to remember this. I've got to make some notes, even if it's in my scroll. And it was a Thursday evening. And my motivation was mainly to become a better therapist so that I could be better for other people. It was not yep. to look at me. Yep. And I went in there on a Thursday night and the thing around Thursday night, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And by the Sunday, I was a different person. I changed the, the stuff that they put me through. I felt for the first time I was truly unconditionally loved. The, the love that I got from my parents was conditional. I was unconditionally loved in that room. I, I, my body was vibrating, like tingling as it finished. I felt like I was almost hovering off the carpet. I was just wow. completely changed. Um, I remember so it, was, it was visceral. You felt it yeah. all over your body. Oh, yeah. and a really tactical question. How did you, apart from the physical sensation, who were you unconditionally loved by? Everybody in the room. I bared my soul, all of my deepest, darkest secrets. I right. bared it all. I, you know, now I understand Jungian therapy. I understand about the cave and the shadow. Well, in that room, I dug in the shadow and I brought it all out, all the gooey, awful stuff I didn't want. Right. people to know and I had it in my hands and I just said this is me and they mm. and they loved me and, and it was like I'm almost close to tears telling you this it was just the mm. most overwhelming sense of acceptance of me as a person and I think it was the first time in my life that I'd been totally accepted just for who I was and not criticized for who I wasn't look that we can catapult anywhere with that one because I think that is such a People are starving for acceptance. And, and almost, I, I sense in the professional work that I do, even more so because there's so many boundaries and policies and masks and rules and regulations that, you know, certain industries should be bound by. 
And yet, how do I wrestle free from that and be fully myself as I am imperfect now and be accepted for it so I can grow? So I sense there's almost this, one of the things that prevents us from growing is acceptance of where we're at and who we are now. Yeah, and ever since we realized we weren't good enough or were told we weren't good, good enough, we built a layer to protect ourselves. And it's like the Russian dolls. You yeah. Know? So right in the middle is this innocent, vulnerable, beautiful thing that we are. Uh, but somebody says that's not good enough. You're stupid. You're ugly. You're fat. And, it's and I find it's amazing that we pick up those beliefs almost like random post-it notes, consciously, unconsciously, overtly, covertly, yeah. as, we, as we move through life. Um, so I'm going to pause there, and I know that sounds a little bit of a, an abrupt ending, but Howard and I got talking, we got in flow, and we talked about many more things. So I'm going to pause it there for this week's episode. Tune in next week to hear Howard and I talk about his dyslexia and the labels of him being called stupid and how we overcome that. We'll see you next week.